Today we're starting a new series, looking at the first epistle of Peter. Consisting of only five chapters, it is a comparatively short book amongst the 66 books of the Bible. Even so, whilst it is not to be elevated above the other books, it is nevertheless one that is packed with fundamental Christian teaching, such as election, the new birth, holiness, suffering for Christ's sake, Christian living, subjection to those who are over you, and also the importance of water baptism. It is without doubt a very concise and helpful handbook for Christian living. Starting with the writer of this letter, it is written in chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Much can be said about Peter, probably more than any of the other apostles. For example, in the last chapter of John's Gospel, Peter jumped out of a fishing boat and swam ashore when he saw a man on the seashore whom he recognised to be the risen Saviour. Unlike Peter, the other apostles came to shore in the boat. Also, there was that very dark time for Peter when he denied the Lord Jesus Christ, not once, not twice, but three times after Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion. On the other hand, there was that wonderful confession of faith from Peter when the Lord Jesus Christ asked his disciples whom they thought he was. Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That answer did not simply come from his mouth, it came from his heart, having been put there by God. As Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And on another occasion, Peter demonstrated his faith when he stepped out of a ship in the dark of night and he began to walk on the stormy sea towards Jesus. However, Peter's faith gave way to fear and he began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me! And Jesus immediately stretched out his hand and saved him, saying, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Putting those thoughts together, what can we reasonably say about Peter in those early days of his apostleship? He was rash, impulsive, impetuous, afraid, and he was cowardly. None of those things would have surprised the Son of God, who knows the thoughts and intents of men's hearts. He would have been under no illusions when he chose Peter to be one of his apostles. For example, even before Peter denied Jesus, the Lord said to him, Simon, 
Simon, behold, Satan have desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. But on a more positive note, Peter did have a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, albeit a little faith. By the grace of God, we can see a very different Peter after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. A Peter who, on the day of Pentecost, preached a powerful sermon of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to the crowd of Jews that had assembled in Jerusalem. They had gladly received his word and they were baptised and the same day about 3,000 souls were saved from their sins. Also, it was the Apostle Peter who brought gospel blessings to the Gentiles and to the Samaritans in those early days of the church. Without a doubt, Peter was greatly used by Jesus, despite all that can be read about him in the four gospel books. Even now, about 2,000 years later, the words of the Apostle Peter are still reaching into men's hearts with the power of God to save them from their sins. And Peter is still strengthening brothers and sisters in Christ across the world as they read and study his two epistles. However, just so that we don't start exalting Peter beyond God's exaltation of him, there's an interesting little account in Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through to 14 of when the the Apostle Paul publicly upbraided Peter in Antioch because he withdrew from eating with the Gentile believers out of fear of certain Judaizers who came from Jerusalem. Even though those visitors professed faith in Jesus, they were of Jewish stock and they objected to eating with Gentiles. And as we are told in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter feared them. As such, even after 20 years or so, the cowardly side of Peter reared its ugly head again. Even so, Roman Catholicism has exalted Peter to the nth degree. For example, the Roman Catholic Church claims that the Lord Jesus Christ said that he would build his church upon Peter. The Bible verse that they quote is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus said to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is one of those times when it is very helpful to look at a concordance, and when you do that, you'll find that the Greek word for Peter is Petros, which is a masculine noun, and it means stone. As for rock, the Greek word is Petra, 
a feminine noun. In other words, a completely different word. The rock or Petra that Jesus will build his church upon is not Peter, it is himself. He is the rock. The hymn writer understood that very well when he wrote, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Also the Roman Catholic Church has declared Peter to be the first bishop of Rome, and they claim that the popes of Rome, with all their grand titles, titles that belong to God, that they are Peter's successors. In order to show that Peter actually went to Rome, they quote 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, where Peter said, <clears throat> The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. You'll notice that Rome isn't even mentioned in that verse. They say that Babylon is code for Rome. However, as the theologian Lorraine Butner pointed out, the remarkable thing, however, about Peter's alleged bishopric in Rome is that the New Testament has not one word to say about it. The word Rome occurs only nine times in the Bible and never is Peter mentioned in connection with it. There is no allusion to Rome in either of his epistles. Paul's journey to the city is recorded in great detail. There is in no fact, there is in fact no New Testament evidence, nor any historical proof of any kind that Peter ever was in Rome. All rests on legend. We can safely assume that when Paul publicly upbraided Peter, he wasn't reproving his boss or chief apostle or pope of Rome. Note, at the beginning of this epistle, Peter didn't introduce himself as the pope or the bishop of Rome. He simply said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. For our part, dear Christians, we ought to be very thankful to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, for appointing and sending out Peter and the other apostles, and for quickening our spirits, feeding our souls, and building us up in our faith through their doctrine. But all said and done, the Apostle Peter and the rest of us who belong to Jesus are perhaps best described in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through to 31, where Paul said, For we see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God have chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God have chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised have God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, 
that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. The first time I saw those words, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, it was when my old pastor showed them to me soon after I became a Christian. That was his response to me when I shared with him that I was still struggling with an addiction to cigarette smoking. Those words of the Apostle Paul ought to give hope to and encourage all of the Lord's redeemed in their Christian service, whether they be pastors, missionaries, students, those employed in secular work, pensioners, in fact, whoever and whenever. The fact of the matter is that in all of you, that is in the flesh, dwelleth no good thing, but God's grace is sufficient for you, as it most certainly was for an impetuous and sometimes cowardly fisherman by the name of Simon, who became the Apostle Peter. Having considered the writer of this letter, it's time to consider whom Peter addressed. Let's look again at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Some of the Bible commentators say that those people were the early Jewish converts who had been dispersed far and wide after persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. Then there are others who look at chapter 2 and verse 10 and say that they were Gentiles. In that verse, chapter 2 verse 10, the Apostle Peter said to them, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. However, chapter 1 and verse 1, and chapter 2 and verse 10, describe all true Christians, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. For example, looking at chapter 1 and verse 1, about them being strangers, Abraham of old is described as a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13. Was Abraham a Jew or was he a Gentile? His grandson Jacob was the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, but as for Abraham himself, he was a Gentile. There was no nation of Israel in his lifetime. In fact, before God called Abraham, he and his family were idol-worshipping pagans from the Ur of Chaldees in Mesopotamia. Even so, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 16, Abraham is said to be the father of us all, inasmuch the Lord Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham, the spiritual seed of Abraham, that is, 
And if you belong to Jesus, you are Abraham's seed, irrespective of whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. It makes no difference. When you look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10 about us now being the people of God, even though in the past we were not, that too applies equally to Jews and Gentiles who receive Jesus and believe on his name. The promise of God that people would be his people and that he would be their God most certainly applies to the Jews, for example, with reference to the Jews who were dispersed into other nations because of their wickedness. God nevertheless made a promise through his prophet Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whither I have driven them in mine anger, and in my fury, and in great wrath. And I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But also, we have the, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 23, through to verse 26. He said, And that he, that is God, might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he have called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith, also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass, that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Therefore, that wonderful promise of God about people becoming his people and him becoming their God applies to all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, irrespective of whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Jesus reconciles them to God and he gives them peace with God through faith in his blood. Like Abraham of old, they are all strangers on the earth. Verse 2 tells us something about such people. Let's have a look now at verse 2. It is written, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. The first thing that can be seen is that the people whom the Apostle Peter addressed were elect. In other words, they were chosen by God. When you prayerfully read your Bible and God graciously lifts the veil from your eyes so that you acknowledge just how deceitful and wicked your heart really is, you will see that not only did God elect you or choose you to be saved from your sin, he made that decision before the foundation of the world. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul spoke of God choosing us in Christ 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The doctrine of election is much maligned and rejected by many preachers, and that is because they don't want to say anything that might offend their hearers. People don't want to hear that salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. People don't want to hear that they are far too sinful to take the initiative and choose God. People want at least some credit for becoming Christians, at least some credit for choosing God. But you know what? I for one thank God that he chose me before the foundation of the world and in the fullness of time that he drew me with loving kindness to his beloved son and he saved me by his grace. Blessed are you if you recognise and accept that if God had left it to you to choose Jesus, you never would have done so and you would still be dead in your sins. If Jesus is your Saviour and your Lord, praise God now and forevermore for electing you. I don't know about you, dear Christian, but I don't even want to think of myself as having chosen to be saved from my sin. I much prefer the glorious truth that God chose me warts and all, just like he did the Apostle Peter and every true Christian who has ever lived. In verse 2, Peter said that we are saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Ordinarily, foreknowledge means having an awareness of something before it even happens or before it even exists. The Greek word that foreknowledge comes from is prognosis, which you'll no doubt have heard before. When doctors give a prognosis, they are endeavouring to tell you with some degree of accuracy if your medical condition is going to allow you to celebrate your next birthday. However, if you have understood what has just been considered about God graciously electing sinners for salvation and everlasting life, you'll appreciate that elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father means that if you are a Christian, it is because you were chosen by God the Father in accordance with his eternal decree, and most certainly not because he looked along the corridor of time and saw that you would be a cut above the rest and that you would be someone very, very special indeed. The greatest example of the foreknowledge of God or his eternal decree can be seen at the cross. When Peter preached to that crowd of Jews on the day of Pentecost, after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said to them, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Even and especially the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ was in accordance with God's eternal decree. It was according to his foreknowledge. 
According to verse 2, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, Christians are people who, as a result of having been chosen by God, have been born again by the Holy Spirit. They live in the Spirit, they walk in the Spirit, they pray in the Spirit, and day by day the Spirit works in them to will and to do of God's good pleasure. Peter went on to say, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. If you thought that election results in saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would not be wrong. But faith isn't even mentioned in this verse. However, when, whenever there is a genuine saving faith in a person as a result of him being chosen by God before the foundation of the world, foreknown by God, born again by the Holy Spirit and continually sanctified by the Spirit, inevitably there is going to be obedience to the will of God. As for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God poured out his blood and he laid down his life at the cross for the elect of God the Father. To most people in the world, the cross is a stumbling block or else it is foolishness. But to the elect, it is the power of God unto salvation when that glorious truth of the atonement is applied to their hearts. I don't know if you notice, but verse 2 is one of those verses that mentions all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, just like Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18, which our brother Stephen brought to our attention a few weeks ago, and which says, for through him, that is through Jesus, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. I love those verses, probably because, by the grace of God, I love God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I can still remember when I first became a Christian and I was allowed to gatecrash the midweek women's meeting as long as they had a male speaker. Anyway, on one occasion, me and the ladies looked at Jude, verse 20 and verse 21, where it is written, But ye... Beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. There you have, there you have again all three persons of the Holy Trinity. Finally, in verse 2, we read, Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. And what a note to end on. Amen.